0: Today we're going to hit First Peter three, thirteen through sixteen. And I was having a, a chat with Cole Fakes about this passage, and he goes, "Well, what?" He goes, "He goes, what sap do you have lined up to teach next week's lesson?" And uh, I go, "Well, that's going to be me." He goes, "He goes, ah, oh, man." I was like, "Well, what's wrong?" He goes. I feel like the passage next week is the most difficult passage in all the Bible to teach. And I go, and that's coming from the Cole fake. So I am really excited about all the lesson prep I'm going to have to do uh, to teach next week's lesson. But this one's a bit more straightforward this week. And I'm really, really excited to hit this uh, here in this group. There's a lot of immediate application for how we lives our, live our lives as Christians, um, how we defend the hope we have in us uh, in this passage we're going to go through today. So I'm, I'm really excited to get into it. And so let me maybe just start by, let me read the whole passage. So if you turn your Bible, Bibles or if it's going to be up at the top of your handouts, verse 13 starts with this. It says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. I want to concentrate first in just those first two verses, because it's important we understand those first two verses before we get to the rest of the real meat, the application of this passage. And I'll say, as we read First Peter, one thing you're going to find is Peter is giving us instructions, like one, one, one command almost every three verses. I mean, he's really getting after it. There's a lot for us to really take away, and there's, there's a, some very important stuff in here. But if you read verse 13, it can almost be confusing. because so it says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And you read that and you go, that actually doesn't sound right. Uh, we, have, we have scripture all over the place in the New Testament that would seem to contradict that. I mean, Jesus himself in the Beatitudes talks about some of the, the trials, tribulations, the difficulties you're going to face as a follower of Christ as, as you do good. And you're actually going to see uh, Peter pick up on this just here in a couple of verses where he seems to contradict his own language there. So it's very important that there in verse 13, we understand what he's saying. And the key is that word harm what he really means by harm. And to explain this, the best way I can really think about this is I had a basketball coach in high school my sophomore year. And this guy came in after a, a basketball coach who had been there for like 25 years retired. And he came in, and he only lasted one year at my high school. The reason he only lasted one year is because the man was insane. I mean, he was, he was such a hard-driving basketball coach Uh, that that many people quit after the first couple practices, and I mean, he just, he killed us. He killed us. I'm still a bit paranoid about running because of what I experienced under Coach Kelly Clark. If anyone knows Coach Kelly Clark, I'm sorry, Uh, but it was, I mean, it was painful, and so I just, I have never experienced the limits of what the human body can go through until I got to spend a year with Coach Kelly Clark. Now, I loved him. Uh, I absolutely love this guy. And I told Brian, I told Brian, Brian's helping me train for running in here right now. And I told Brian, the only way I can be motivated to exercise is for someone to yell at me or for someone to, to be disappointed in me if I don't make my goals. I need that coach to tell me what I'm doing wrong. And uh, that works pretty well in my marriage, too. But, but I'll say... Coach Clark, he would push us so hard, so hard. And I remember multiple times in games coming over to the sideline and i had just been beaten up somehow, some way. I mean I was I mean I wasn't always this muscular physique you see in front of you now. And so I was a smaller guy in high school and I would just get beat up with some of the guys I had to go in and play against. And I remember I come over hobbling, ankle injured, knee injured, head injured, just whatever it may be. And I remember he'd look at me and he'd go, Blake. Are you hurt or are you injured? Are you hurt or are you injured? Because if I was hurt, I was getting back in the game. If I was injured, he would still maybe put me back in the game, but he'd at least listen for a little bit longer. But he made this distinction between are you hurt or are you injured? And, And this same distinction is kind of occurring here in this verse right now where he says, who is there to harm you? And I want you to think about that other side, that truly injure you. If, if you are a follower of Christ, what can anyone do to you to truly harm you? The worst that can happen to you is you can be killed. And then, and then if you are killed, you had, to, you had to experience glory in Christ just a little bit sooner, right? There is nothing that can truly happen to you to actually harm the hope that you have as a follower of Christ. So I want you to think about that distinction. Does it mean that you may get hurt from time to time? yeah, you're going to get hurt. You're going to have battle wounds all over the place as we follow Christ. That is very, very clear in scripture. And for all of you guys, I'm sure you can attest from personal experience that that is true. We're going to get hurt, but we are not going to be harmed, right? So if you understand that passage, that 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 thought, you move on to verse 14, and, it's, and it kind of Continues on the theme. It says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness, think, be, be hurt, suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. It's a promise from God. So, so what? Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Right? You should not have any fear in Christ, because there's nothing that can happen to harm you. I, I love that, that idea of not having fear. And uh, if you really think about that, is the only way you cannot have fear is if you fully understand that the strength we have occurs because of Christ. It is what God is doing through us. If you understand that, you should not be afraid. Alexander McLaren, a commentator once said, he goes, only he who can say, the Lord is the strength of my life, can go on to say, of whom shall I be afraid? Right? If the Lord is the strength of your life, you should never be afraid for what he's going to go and ask you do, to do. And I know I've said this in here before, and I've said this in other lessons I've taught, but this is why I hate the saying, God's never going to give you more than you can handle, because it's an absolute lie. He's going to give you more than you can handle, but he will never give you more than he can accomplish through you. Right? The, that strength that we have comes from him. You may suffer for righteousness sake, but you are not going to be hurt. So if you continue on here, let's get into verse 15. It says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, always being prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in you. Christ is our Lord, we have the strength to overcome anything, we're not going to be injured. There's a lot of hope in that statement. That is a very proud, bold statement that we're, we are making. The, the, the command here is honor God as holy and always be prepared to make a defense for why you have that hope. And so before, what we're going to spend most of our time on today is that, that thought of how do we make a defense for the hope that we have in Christ. But before we get there, I want to talk to us a little bit about what hope is actually is let's make sure we understand what we're what we're talking about when we say hope hope is an expectation or belief in the fulfillment of something desired uh, if you really think about it it's, it's we all are going to have uncertainty over what the future holds we're not exactly sure what is going to come at us at any given point in time and that uncertainty of what the future holds has made everyone has made many people fear what could occur right what could occur we have hope in Christ because we are, we are resting assured of what is not only going to happen to us in the future, not only what's going to happen to us after death, but we have hope in what's going to happen to us tomorrow. We, we get to rest upon the promises of God that a life in Christ will deliver us certain expectations tomorrow as well as well into the future. We don't have to fear because our hope is, is based on the faithfulness of God, not on our own power to control our circumstances. And so if we trust in the faithfulness of God, we can actually hold on to that hope. And that's, that's something very different. If, if, I think it's very, sometimes it's hard for me to remember what it was like to not truly have that hope. And the anxiety that occurs when you're always worried about whether or not you're going to be able to control your own future, your own destiny, that is a massive amount of anxiety. Uh, There is not much peace when it comes to that. But if you're looking forward to the future, knowing that even though you don't know exactly what's going to come, but you can hope in what God is doing, that is a great, great peace that we all get to experience. The, The fulfillment of our hope happen when Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected from the grave. Because if he can if he can conquer death, then we cannot be harmed, because in him we get to experience his righteousness and not even death can defeat us as well. So I want to make sure you understand that hope. That that is a very different concept than what the world truly understands of what they have to hope for. When you look for it in the world, you're really just hoping that you can experience less pain and find some sort of joy and fulfillment in something that you're going to control. Our hope is in something much greater, something much grander, something the world can't offer. So, does that make sense, though, whenever we talk about hope? I want to make sure I'm I'm seeing a lot of head nodding, but uh, there's no... Okay, we're good. We're good. So we understand what we're actually trying to defend. We're trying to defend the hope we have in Christ. And so this is going to be a very practical lesson today. I want to give you some good building blocks for how we're going to go out into the world and execute on the command that Peter is giving us. Uh, this is a very, very important command. Always be prepared to make a defense. You know, I want you to think about that. Make a defense. I want to think about the way, the way Peter's talking about it Is It's almost like being on trial, be ready, be prepared to make a defense, because you're going to get your opportunity to defend the hope you have in Christ. I know you're going to get the opportunity, because I'm going to pray that you get that opportunity, right? And I'm sure many of you have had in the past, but I'm going to pray today that you get that opportunity, so let's be ready for what we need to do to make sure we can be prepared to make a defense. And so I've got on your note page, there's a few things I think you need to have as building blocks to make sure you're, you're ready are ready. To provide a defense. Uh, We we have to make sure we've got some of those crucial blocks of understanding. And the first thing I think you have to do in order to be able able to make a defense of the hope you have is to actually be able to articulate the gospel. And that may be a message that is lost on this group because you guys, most of you guys in here have been studying the Bible for a long time and and you you can sit there and explain the gospel to anyone who may ask. But that is not the normal thought process of most of the people going to church in America on, on a weekly basis. Uh, if we were to say, can you, can you help me understand what the gospel is, they'd be like, I know the gospel, I've heard that a lot, uh, that means good news, but actually be able to, to articulate it is much, much more difficult for people. Uh, or, or they may just say, well, that's just a churchy word, but to actually be able to articulate the gospel, can we do that? Can we say that you know God God is the one who created this world, and He intentionally designed us to be in a loving relationship with Him, that we that I disobeyed and rebelled and i 've sinned against God, i, I can 't even hold up to my own standards of morality, not less god 's, and the punishment for that sin for that rebellion against God is death but In his great love for us, even though we were still sinners, he came and he made a way and he died for us. In Christ, all the prophecies were fulfilled. God made a way, becoming man. He lived the perfect life and he was the perfect sacrifice. And he conquered death, was resurrected. And as we put our faith in him, as we put our full trust in him, not even death can conquer us. In this broken world, we can live in him. We can experience the joy and peace that comes from the relationship with him today, not just in the future. Right? Are we able to articulate those, those basic elements of the gospel? Because however you make a defense for the hope you have, it eventually has got to end in the gospel. Right? You're going to have to make sure people understand the gospel or else you're just putting your hope in something fun and freely and, and, and a moralistic therapeutic deism. Right? You, you have to make sure you can articulate the gospel. But don't be, don't be or do not underestimate the amount of people who don't know what the gospel is. Right? Just because you do doesn't mean somebody else can't. Be ready to make sure you can, under, you can articulate it. The second kind of big building block I think we need to have in place is we have to be able to trust what we read in Scripture is actually true, right? Uh, You need to actually know, you need to understand, is Scripture true or not? Uh, If you don't believe in the authority of Scripture as a Christian, everything falls apart really fast. Uh, If you don't believe in the authority of just certain aspects of Scripture— Everything falls apart really fast. Some of you guys in this in this class I know have come from churches that once believed in the authority of Scripture and no longer do. And watch what happened to that church when they started to cave on the idea of the authority of Scripture. If Jesus doesn't have to be born to a virgin, this whole idea of transfer of sin doesn't make sense. This whole, this whole idea of a, of a sinless life doesn't make sense. If, De- if Jesus didn't die on the cross, this doesn't make sense. If his bones are still in a grave somewhere, I'm out, right? If he didn't conquer death, why would I put my hope in him? Right? So if, if, if you're ever sitting there and you're tempted to downplay or degrade the authority of Scripture, just know that that foundation will crumble. We have to be able to stand on the authority of Scripture and be able to give a defense as to why we stand on the authority of Scripture. And you're going to hear a lot of reasons why you can't stand on the authority of Scripture. Uh, you're going to hear it's been translated so many times you really can't trust it. Uh, and that's just not true, right? That's just what people say who are uninformed, right? If, if you go to the guys who just went to Israel, you got to see the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? And that's a very important lesson because you can trace back something that was written a 1,000 years ago, a little over a 1,000 years ago or so. I'm sorry, more than that, 2,000 years ago. You can trace back something that was written over 2,000 years ago, and you can see the very first written Bible we have, the, what's it called, the Roman Catholic um, Whatever it is, you guys know what I'm talking about. The very first written Bible we have that's about a thousand years old, you can see how closely everything lines up. And when you go back and you look at how translations are done, we don't play that translation game where when you say goat in Japanese, by the time you translate it to the fifth language, it ends up being a cow. That's, that's not how we translate the Bible. We go back to original sources. You know, We translate English from the original Greek or Hebrew. We, we, we make sure we go back to original source documents for our translations. Right? So this isn't, um, this isn't something we can't trust based on the way the translations have worked. It's also, you're going to hear, well, this was just a book written by men. Well, that's not what we believe as Christians. We believe that this was inspired by the Holy Spirit, that God himself ordained and orchestrated what we have as the Bible. This was not just the work of man. Did God use men? Yes. But this was Holy Spirit inspired. And you're also going to hear this an awful lot. And you're going to say, well, I just can't trust in the Bible because I believe in science. And, and I just want to hit that real quick, uh, because you're going to hear that more and more often. And can, can a Christian also believe in science? Yes. yes. Are they mutually exclusive? No. No. What is science? Because whenever someone says, I believe in science, they're normally saying something different. They're normally saying, I believe in a naturalistic worldview right? I believe in a- absolute naturalism, that there's nothing in this world that can happen apart from natural forces. That's normally what they mean when they say, I believe in science. When we say, I believe in science, we believe that, that a scientific process can reveal great glories in this, in this earth that will be consistent with what we read in scripture. Science is an incredible, incredible uh, discipline to help us understand different aspects of this world. But I, I would put every bit of money I could ever earn in my life on the fact that nothing will ever be discovered in science that, does not, is, that it is not consistent with what we read in the Bible. All right? And, and I'll, 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 we have to be careful with this because especially in the social media age and everything, you're going to be able to read a lot of articles by people with very important titles that will say that you cannot trust the Bible because of these scientific facts. But you have to know that you can read another article by, a very, by another very smart person with lots of letters next to their name that will contradict that. If you, if you go back and you look at the history of natural sciences and the history of philosophies, what you'll find is about every 20, 30 years, there's another really bright guy who will contradict the person who came before them. Right? And then they'll keep building and keep building and keep building. And what one generation thought was absolute fact continues to evolve over time. Evolve was probably the bad word to use for this, but... Uh, <laughs> But will continue to change over time. If you go back and you study philosophy, you'll you'll find that that the uh, original philosophers back in in, in Greece, you know, were, were then contradicted by the guys in uh, the um, uh, industrial era, and then you'll 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 read guys like Nietzsche, and and you'll see things that he's contradicted from Christianity, and then the guy comes after him and contradicts Nietzsche. So so you, you just you sit there and, and look at this, and it's very important to look at a broad span of time. And understand that men are flawed. No one's going to get this exactly right. Can science reveal the beauty and glory of God? Yes, I I think it can. Whenever the original person looked up and said, no, 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 no. This universe is so much more massive than you ever could understand. And, and I'm, not saying, I'm not saying that means God's not real. I'm saying God is more majestic than we understood before. I think science will continue to reveal those aspects of God, but not contradict Scripture. Right? So I just want you guys to be careful that you can be a Christian and be a leading scientist. You, know, you can be a Christian and be a leading philosopher, uh, but be careful not to just take the opinion of someone who seems really smart, because there may be a kernel of truth in, in what everyone says, but you can find good academics, good researchers who can then help you understand why you can stand firm on the authority of Scripture. Just be careful with that. As we continue to dig up more, and that's one of the I really enjoyed going to Israel Every time they have to build a new road in Israel, they have to go through an archaeological dig to make sure they're not going to build the road on top of, of, you know, something really, really important. And so as they continue to develop out Israel, they dig, they dig, they dig, and they find all this incredible stuff. And everything they're finding is is giving you more and more um, evidence to tell you that the events that were discussed in the Bible actually happened. I mean, we know so much more today than we did even 20 years ago that can help us say, what we're reading about David and all the administration in the Old Testament happened. We've got evidence of these things. And so there's a lot of things we can see uh, to help us make sure we understand Scripture. The other thing that I take a lot of comfort in in Scripture is understanding the stories of the disciples in the time of persecution in the early church. And, and I look at this and I think about myself, and I think about Peter as a good example of this. We all knew how flawed Peter was early on in his ministry, early on in the time he was following Christ, and we saw how he got transformed over time. We have a lot of evidence of the life of these guys in the early church, and we see that they were willing to die excruciating deaths to uphold what we are reading about in Scripture, and that alone gives me a lot of personal faith or just... Just um, uh, good feelings that, that what we're reading is actually true, but you're never going to be able to prove every aspect of the Bible. I mean, I don't think that's not what the Bible is meant to be. It's not going to be a comprehensive science book. It's not going to be a comprehensive geography book. It's going to have, have aspects of all that in it, but you're not going to prove every element of the Bible. But don't think that physical proof is required to believe in everything you see. I want you to think about. All the people who were there at the time of Christ saw him perform the miracles, yet still did not believe, right? Physical evidence right in front of you is not the only thing required to have faith. So just be careful as you walk with that. But you do need to have uh, enough understanding of things to make sure that when you're challenged, you can, you can help defend why you say Scripture is authoritative. Right? And if you're needing a good, a good fun book to read, uh, I don't know if you guys remember a year or two ago, we had a guy come on Wednesday night named Peter Williams, and Terry Fakes interviewed him. He wrote a great book called uh, Can We Trust the Gospels? And this guy is an incredible scholar, really, really interesting guy, fun guy to follow on Twitter, by the way. Um, but, but if you ever want to get that book, buy that book, it's a really fascinating book to help you, to help, honestly, to help refute a lot of the teaching that's occurring in some mainline Protestant denominations right now that the Gospels aren't consistent and can't be trusted. And so you read the way he's come about that and the, the angle he's hit at why you can trust it, it is really, really impressive and powerful. And that's why I say you, you can read lots of smart people who are going to bash Christianity. You can read lots of smart people who are going to support Christianity. Always know that, that you can find people who've, who've thoughtfully gone through this to come up with good conclusions. The third thing I think we need to have in our arsenal is that if we believe the Bible to be true, then do we actually trust in the faithfulness of God? In short, do we trust that God's actually going to keep his promises? So if you kind of start it with, we understand the gospel and we understand the promise of the gospel, we understand scripture and we believe it to be true. The last step of it is, do you actually trust God to keep his promise? right? Do you trust God that he's going to keep his promise? And if you read all the biblical accounts, and this is one reason I think it's very important that we spend time as a church in the Old Testament, right? If you read all the biblical accounts, you will find promise after promise after promise of God that he always keeps. Now, were the people always faithful to their end of the covenant? No, right? But God is always faithful in his covenant. And if you have If you have lived this life for long, faithfully following Christ, you can experience the fact, you can attest personally to the fact that God has been faithful to the promises he makes us on a daily basis. And I want you to think about this just a little bit. I want you to imagine yourself that you have kids, and some of you do, some of you don't, but imagine you have kids for a moment, and imagine yourself as the most perfect version of a dad that you could possibly be. And if you were that, that best father in the world that you can even imagine, if you were just absolutely incredible, an incredibly loving father, is there any promise you would make to your child and not follow through on it? Right. And a lot of us are flawed dads in here right now, and I know whenever I make my kid a promise, I'm going to follow through on it. God is the best version of anything we could imagine. If he makes his children a promise, he's going to keep that promise. But I think you have to have these three building blocks. You know, can you articulate the gospel? Can you make sure you can trust what we read in scripture? And can you help people understand why we can trust in the promises of God? So if you have those building blocks, though, the next part is we must be actually prepared to make the defense. We have to be able to tell our own story as to why you personally can put your hope in Christ. This is where it's got to get personal. All of you have your own story of redemption in Christ. And, and and we read in the Bible in multiple accounts of how God has just said, go tell your story of what Christ has done for you. Think about that story where, where the uh, demon-possessed man uh, up on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee, whatever city that is, you guys, you guys went and saw. The demon-possessed man, the you know, demon went out, the legion into the pigs. Pigs go over the cliff. And, uh, and that guy just desperately wants to go with Jesus no matter where, he, where Jesus is going to go. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I want you to go back to where you came from, and I want you to tell everyone what Christ has done, the, what mercy you have seen. And if you remember, the town that he told him to go back into was not a Jewish town, was it? This was a, a pagan area. Uh, they did not know God. And so that guy was obedient, obedient, right? He went back into that town, and he told everyone in the town what God did for him. And the reason we know he told everyone in the town what God did for him is because the only time in Scripture that he pops up next, the next time he pops up and the only time he pops up, is when Jesus comes back to that area, and when Jesus comes back to that area, what happens? 4,000 people come to meet Jesus, wanting to be healed by this man, because that guy has gone and told everyone what Christ did for him. He was obedient. We all have our personal story, right? So we have to be able to be ready to explain why we have hope. And so if we do nothing else today, I would really like for you guys to give this a whole lot of thought, I want you to actually write it down. You don't have to write it down in class today, but I want you to take home your note page or, or put it in a note card, whatever you need to do. But I want you to write down why is it personally that you can, you have the hope that, we have, that you have in Christ. And given I have the luxury of knowing what lesson I'm going to teach before I come in here, uh, I gave this a whole lot of thought, and I thought it would be easy for me to explain why I have this hope. For me to explain, in short, why I'm a Christian. Uh, and it wasn't actually as easy as I thought this was going to be. I was going to make you guys write this down in here and talk about it. And then I realized it took me about 12 hours to figure this one out. And, and so, but I want to tell you what I came up with. And I want you to really think about this. And, and as we leave today, we've got more to do today. But, but when you leave here today, I want this to really be something you all go do. Make sure you write this down. I want you to be ready to give a defense because God's going to give you an opportunity. So this is what I wrote down for why I have the hope I have. I was fortunate to be raised where I got a decent understanding of God and scripture in general, which helped me get a foundation of knowledge and application of faith at an early age. I was very fortunate, and I think I honestly think that there were people, generations before me who prayed for me uh, to make sure that that happened. But like many... The faith I had as a child, which was very easy, became much more difficult and harder to sustain as I got older, and eventually I went my own way. As I got older, I began to see that there was great hopelessness, though, in everyone I engaged with. The people who had attained the best the world could offer would get to the top of the mountain, and they'd be disappointed. It's like that old adage when Tom Brady won the Super Bowl for the first time, and he goes, now, what? Right? You get to the top of the mountain that you're climbing, the best of what the world can offer, and you get disappointed. I felt a similar sense of despair in my life. My journey to a full faith in Christianity began more intellectually than it did emotionally. And not everyone is like this, but mine did. I wanted to understand the claims of Christ better. I wanted to, with the understanding I had of the world now and the sense of despair that I felt, I I couldn't simply put my trust in something I didn't completely understand. So I dove in with questions I had about this world, with questions I had about the claims of God, uh, with questions I had that I'd never really wrestled with as a child. And as I dove in and I actually read the word for myself, and I got engaged personally myself with scripture and with any understanding I could find, what I found was that the God I thought I knew was not the God in the Bible. The God of the Bible is a much more powerful God, a much more majestic God, and a much more loving God than I ever understood whenever I was growing up. And then the consistency of the Bible absolutely astonished me. I was not ready for that. The consistency was incredible. There was no way as you read this that you could read it intellectually and say that was written by man. There was absolutely no way everything could come together the way it does in the Bible and be completely written by man. So as I kept reading, I also went and I studied other world religions and I studied other philosophies. And I couldn't get any other religion or philosophy in this world to be anywhere near as consistent as the Bible. And in every, every world philosophy seemed to have some absolute apparent contradiction in it. The only two philosophies in the world I could actually make sense of were Christianity and absolute nihilism. Nihilism being you believe in absolute nothing. I could get behind that because it's consistent. Everything else in between had an absolute contradiction in it. And so as I went through that, I arrived at this conclusion that this was a consistent Document that it must be written by God, and then I found that the Bible was in fact alive. It started to hit me hard. Uh, it, it, what I, what the Bible said, I would experience as I read it and I followed it. I experienced what I felt is what it told me. I would felt I experienced all of those things as I kept putting my more and more of my trust in Christ. And then, I, then then, from a heart standpoint, as I continued to dive in, I felt absolutely convicted of my sin. And I found, I found myself longing for forgiveness and repentance. Uh, I found myself in awe of the God I was learning about and the God I began to experience on a more personal basis. I, I found myself wanting to love the way I felt like I was being loved, and I've never experienced that. With all my heart, I began to desire God, not just intellectually, but also emotionally. And when those two things connected, it just seemed to set off a fire in me that I have a hard time uh, really explaining. And each day, as I put more and more of my trust in him, as I put more and more of my weight down in the chair, if you really think about it that way, as I put more trust in him, I experienced the promises that he gave me. Right? I got to experience that joy joy that peace, his faithfulness, his blessings, his blessings in ways that, that the world cannot even compare to. I got to actually experience those things. And so now I, I, I have hope that death is not the end, but I also have hope of what's going to happen tomorrow. And there's no other worldview that can help me understand that not only that, that I can be grieving and suffering and also have joy. Right? There's no other worldview that can deal with those contradictions other than what we learn in the Bible about Christianity, and no other place can experience it as true the way I experience it as true. So that's why I have hope, right? It started with the pursuit of an intellectual curiosity and ended in the heart wanting to be a different person in Christ, right? And so everyone has to have their own story about why we have that hope. And I think that's my story. It's probably way too long-winded. But I want you guys to talk to us a few minutes at your group and just what, what's your story? If you have one, if you think there is is why is it that you're sitting here today and you're a Christian, right? Why is it? Because it probably, it wasn't by accident. There's people in your lives uh, who spoke to you. There was, there was things you had to do. There was soul searching you ended up doing. There was repentance. Uh, there, there was an engagement. Something happened that you're sitting here today following Christ, and that's a story you're gonna have to tell. So let's talk about that for a few minutes, uh, and then we'll come back. Well let, let's start to bring it back here. What I, hope, what I hope all of you guys got to really understand talking to each other just a little bit, and I suspect we could have had the entire hour everybody telling these stories, but what I hope just in the little bit you guys talked, you, you see everyone's got their own version of this story. Right, everyone. Everyone has had an experience with Christ. Some of you guys may have been raised in a Christian home, and you've never known anything else. Right, and that's great. That's that's what that's what parents were are called to do to to teach our our kids in the ways that are true. What's I mean, that, that's that's what we're supposed to be doing as parents, you know. You may have been completely lost out in the wilderness for a long time and come to know Christ. Everyone's got their own story. Uh, Not too many of us have had the the Damascus Road experience that Paul had, uh, but we all have our own stories. And any encounter with God, any encounter where we come to faith in Christ, is a supernatural, incredible encounter. Right? Even if it seems boring to you, that's fine. That's an experience you had with the Almighty God. Right? So you all have your story. Now, I think it's interesting to learn from Scripture, though, on how we best tell this story, because you're going to be given opportunities. And the guy I always look at in here uh, to help us understand how we tell our story is I look at what Paul did. And I think Paul would have been an incredible salesman in 21st century America. I think he would have been great. And so I think about some of you guys have been in sales here before, and I talked to Lynn, you know, some of your your experience in sales. Yeah. Yeah, Paul Paul, he was a good salesman. He had a great product to sell, right? He, uh, now we're not trying to sell Christianity, but there's a tactic you learn when you're in sales that's very, very interesting. And and I happened to learn this tactic, because you guys may not know about this on my on my resume, but I was the number one salesman in the state of Oklahoma for T-Mobile cell phones in 2004. So, I mean, it's, right. it's, um, it's not a uh, huge deal, but some people think I'm pretty special. So, uh <laughs> Whenever, whenever I was learning, whenever I was learning how to sell, you know, the very first thing that they taught me was you need to connect with the person you're trying to sell to. You need to connect in a personal way. Find some sort of personal connection. And so for me, I did this fairly well. I, I, I picked up on that real quickly, and I had this perfect sales line. I, I mean, it was it was too easy. I, I for some reason, all the middle aged women came to me, and I'm not. Now this was. This was 19-year-old version of Blake, you know, so all the middle-aged women would come to me, and I'd sit there and talk to them for a little while, and eventually I would, I would, I'd go, you know, this is the phone that I made sure my mom had, and they, oh, give me five, right? Give me five, right? So, so it was just one of those, it was, I learned to connect, you know, they saw me as a son figure, and it, it just, it worked out great. But you always find that personal connection, and Paul does this really really well so I want to give you a few scriptures uh to write down these scriptures because I'm not going to read through all of them but I want you to write down Acts 22 write down Acts 26 and then Romans 1 And what you see in those three, Acts 22, Acts 26, and Romans 1, is that Paul starts with every audience. These are very different audiences. He starts with what they understand, and then he gets them to the gospel right? So for the very first one in Acts 22, he starts with a Jewish audience, and he explains to them why he can relate to them. He's a, he's a Jewist of all Jews, right? He explains to them why they can trust him and his understanding of what they know, and then he gets them to Christ. You know, in, in Acts 26, he's, he's sitting there with King Agrippa, you know, who's in the Herodian family line on trial, and he starts with things he knows that king of that area is going to understand, and he even calls him out a little bit. I mean the the Herodian family line they had to kind of pretend they were Jewish even though they really weren't and so he goes he goes you've seen everything that's occurring you know the prophets right do you not believe in the prophets knowing he can't answer no that he doesn't believe in the prophets he has to believe in the prophets you believe in the prophets and and I know you as king you're none of this is escaping your purview you're seeing what's going on in your kingdom right how can you tell me that this is not true right? So he gets the king right there back to the gospel. And there's this famous line where King Agrippa says, in such a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian right here in front of everybody? And Paul goes, I'm going to try to persuade everyone in this room to be everything that I have except for these chains that I'm bound in, right? And so it's just this incredible way where no matter where he is, he sits there and does it. And then even in Romans, These guys are not normally Jewish, they're they're, they're coming from a very different perspective, from a Greco-Roman cultural perspective, and he starts with reason and logic and philosophy. He starts with things they're well versed in, and he gets them to Christ, right? So I want you to understand that, is you're going to be in situations where you're going to be dealing with lots of different types of people, and you need to understand where they are coming from. You may be dealing with people who have been burned by a church at some point in time, who've been treated unfairly. You may be dealing with people who have never heard of Christ before. You may be dealing with people who are very egotistical and materialistic and pursuing after worldly powers. You're going to be dealing with lots of different types of people. One thing that we can learn from Paul is to get into their perspective and start with where they are, but always end up at the gospel, right? Always get them back there. And so what's not going to happen is you're not normally going to have someone come up to you today or tomorrow or later this week and say, hey, Gene, can you tell me why do you have hope in Jesus Christ? Now, Gene, it might actually happen to. Gene's so enthusiastic about God, people may actually say, why is your hope in Jesus Christ? But, from, but, but that's not a normal thing, right? They're not going to say that, but they are going to give you an opening. They're going to give you an opening. And just just for a few minutes, me think about examples. I thought about all kinds things that I have had the opening to give my defense for why my hope is in Christ. I've had the opening and I have not taken it. Right? Think about your coworker who comes up and says, "Hey, you want to go play golf on Sunday morning?" Think about your coworker who says, "You know, I don't know how you have time to go to church as much as you do." Right? Or or a coworker who says. I, I need to talk to you about something because things aren't going well at home. They've seen something in you. They've seen how you manage your family, and they're going through a crisis in their life. And so for some reason, they feel like they can trust you to talk to. How do you meet them where they are, right? How do you meet them in that moment and then say, I'm going to get you to Christ? I'm going to explain why I actually have this hope. Because it's not just because I'm a good dad. Right? I don't play golf on Sundays just because I want to be a good dad and take my kids to church. There's a reason that my time is reserved for the worship of the one holy God. Right? You've got to get them there. I thought about my boss who once told me, he goes, I don't understand why you're not applying for this job. Right? And then I had to explain what that would do to my family, my faith, et cetera, right? You have to actually explain it. I could have just avoid it, but you're going to get those openings. Think about a neighbor who you may walk up to and meet, and after about the third or fourth time, when they've interacted with you and your family a little bit, they say, you know, you have such a great family. What do you do right, right? And you get to explain how it is that your household operates, right? What it is that has been poured into your kids, into your wife, into your family over the years. You may have a friend who sits there and says, you know what, who's very, very skeptical. He says, you know, I don't know how you can believe that stuff. It all seems like food. It all seems silly to me, right? They're starting at a very interesting perspective. You need to get in their heads and get them back to why you can actually believe. You may have another friend who says, you know what, if you wouldn't give all your money to the church, you could go on this trip with us. Right? They're going to give you that opening. And the last thing, you might, you might have a friend who says, I really, and I've had multiple friends tell me this, I really respect all that you do. I think you're doing some incredible things for our community, but I just don't believe all that. I believe in science, right? How do you take that person and explain to them what they think love is, is actually not what we think love is. What, what, the reason that I do things in the community is not the reason you may do things in the community. We may both be doing good things, but our rationale and the reason why we feel compelled to do it are very, very different. Why I can be a Christian and also be smart and trust in some scientific processes as well. right? How do you get people there? You need to be looking for those openings. And you may feel awkward... You may feel like backing away. It may lead to a bit of an uncomfortable conversation sometimes, but we are being commanded by Peter. Always be prepared to make a defense. Always be prepared. You're not going to be, you don't have to go be this bombastic, over-the-top, scream-from-the-roof-type type of person. God's going to give you the opportunities. Make sure you know how you can take that little crack that you get you know, sympathize, make sure you get in their frame of mind and then get them back to Christ. Does that make sense? All right. What I want you guys to do for homework in here, I want you to read those three passages and, and watch how Paul managed every audience. You can learn so much from the way Paul relates to his audience and gets them back to Christ. And then take some time, write down your story. Why do you have the hope that you do? Be prepared to make that defense. I'm going to pray that God gives you the opportunity. So make sure you do this homework assignment. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much uh, for these gentlemen. I, I thank you for your church. I thank you for the great gift we have in Jesus Christ. We have a hope that other people cannot even comprehend, and that's the problem. May you help us have the opportunity to explain it as best we can. May you give us the opportunity to lead people by the hand to you. May people follow us and get to you. We know that you have the power to do all of this, and we are so thrilled that you choose to use us the way you do. May we be obedient, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's difficult, even when we may have fear that we could be hurt, because we know we will not be harmed. We thank you so much, God, for all you've done for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.